turn to Matthew's gospel this morning, if you go ahead and turn to chapter 8, and we will be on page 813 in your pew Bibles, and I'll let you turn there. This whole section of Matthew has a grand story arc to it, and we've been pointing that out, and uh, over the last few times we've preached out of Matthew Uh, You may have heard us, just as Gary talked this morning, talk about who is Jesus. And we see that again this week. And it's building. The story is building towards a a grand um, point and conclusion that we're going to be seeing. And, uh, you know, I I think a a major part of the story arc comes in the next sermon. But, uh, But in this sermon, there's this emphasis on the spiritual, on spiritual warfare, as we, uh, we see this account of the uh, demon-possessed man and the herd of pigs. You may have seen this story in your reading of the Gospels before. And, uh, you know, when we think about spiritual things in our own day and time, oftentimes we go throughout life without even thinking about anything spiritual. And if you look at... Uh, you know, the, just the, the way we live our lives and the way we think about the world around us, in the modern world, we think of everything as what's physical, what's right in front of our eyes, what we can touch and feel. And that's why uh, you, some of you may have read C.S. Lewis's Screwtape Letters, and in there, he's trying to open that up for us a little bit so we can see that there is a spiritual battle. But in Screwtape Letters, we see a particular view of spiritual warfare, It's a tame view intended for a genteel people. And that kind of makes sense, you know, his audience and who he's writing for. For example, Screwtape says, Indeed, the safest road to hell is the gradual one, the gentle slope, the soft underfoot, without sudden turnings, without milestones, without signposts. The idea is that the demons are at work in the world, but there's this spiritual battle going on that we don't always see. And Lewis's approach is meant for this modern Western frame of reference, the secular world of the 20th century, where we see the world as material. The physical world is all you get. And yet, in almost every other culture throughout time, we see the physical and the spiritual together. There's an interplay between them, and it informs how we understand the world around us. The whole point of Revelation, which Brett has been preaching through, is to open the curtain for us to see that spiritual realm behind what we see every day. So we see behind the scenes. And there's more than the physical world, and it helps us to understand that connection between the spiritual and the physical. And from a Christian perspective, this interaction points toward an ultimate end. There's a purpose that the whole world is driving toward. And so, for us, it's a wake-up call to realize that there is a spiritual battle. But this account from the Gospels is more than that. It's also a wake-up call to see demons as being truly evil and destructive. These are not genteel demons here in this account. But we also need to see this in the context of the ancient world and in other cultures as well. They see the spiritual battle 
They feel the weight of being unable to go toe-to-toe with spiritual forces that they cannot control. There's a spiritual adversary. So in our culture, we ignore the possibility of spiritual warfare. We pretend that it's not there. But in other cultures, it can bind them under the weight of something they cannot control. And so there's a lesson to learn from each of these. Right? First, that there is a corrective for each side. First, that there is a spiritual battle. And we need to be aware of that. And we should not see too little in that spiritual battle. And then on the other side, that Christ has all authority and power over the physical and the spiritual, so we should not fear the outcome. And then in light of that understanding, there's an implication. How are we going to respond to this reality? So we'll be looking at that this week. So starting in Matthew chapter 8, verse 28, right, Jesus has complete authority. There's a time set for judgment, and the people respond with fear. Let's read together. And when he came to the other side, to the country of the Gadarenes, two demon-possessed men met him, coming out of the tomb, so fierce that no one could pass that way. And behold, they cried out, What have you to do with us, O Son of God? Have you come here to torment us before the time? Now a herd of many pigs was feeding at some distance from them, and the demons began or begged him, saying, If you cast us out, send us away into the herd of pigs. And he said to them, Go. So they came out and went into the pigs. And behold, the whole herd rushed down the steep bank into the sea and drowned in the waters. The herdsmen fled. And going into the city, they told everything, especially what had happened to the demon-possessed men. And behold, all the city came out to meet Jesus. And when they saw him, they begged him to leave their region. So we see the same authority in all these stories that we saw in the beginning of the chapter. You go back to the beginning, there's a healing of a leper and the centurion's servant. And here, in these last two accounts, we saw that Jesus has authority over the physical world. He calms the sea. And he has authority over the spiritual He sends these demons into pigs. And this area across the sea, it was a Gentile region. He had come under too much heat in uh, the area where he was. And so he said, come on, let's cross to the other side. And he just took his disciples with him. And they went to this Gentile area on the other side of the sea. And there were these big herds of pigs there on the side of the hill. And they would have been very important to the townspeople. This was a massive herd of pigs. Now, Matthew records two men, and some might point out that Mark and Luke record one man. And this could be because one was a ringleader among them. There's different theories that folks have. But one thing we need to understand is that different gospel authors highlight different aspects of each of these stories. And we can understand why. But we don't always know why a particular account highlights certain things. We do know that in this account, um, Mark and Luke highlight more of what happens to, to the man who's released from possession and what he did afterwards and interactions with him than Matthew 
Matthew doesn't really go into that in any detail. Instead, Matthew really focuses on Jesus. And that's part of this story arc that we're building here of who is Jesus in this section. So we know that Matthew has a shorter account than Mark and Luke. And Mark and Luke add more details. But uh, both in how the demon-possessed man was burdened by the affliction and how he responded and declared how much God had done for him among the Greek cities. Luke adds this detail that there were 2,000 pigs. So they have these longer accounts, but the focus here is more on Jesus. And so what we do know about the men is that they're violent. They're, they're fierce. They're impulsive. And they stayed in these tombs cut into the hillside on a steep hill. And the situation was so bad that no one could pass on the road that way. And the local people knew to stay away from there. And notice this drastic difference between this situation and the healing stories from earlier in the chapter. Where each of those healings, the folks responded in faith. And the events drew larger crowds. And here we don't see an accounting of the faith of the people in this instance. Right? They're, they're not rejoicing like those in earlier in the chapter. The focus is squarely on Jesus, his actions, and the response that the people had. And so in these last two accounts, the people responded with fear. So in the earlier accounts in Matthew, you have his control over the physical and the spiritual, and the people responded with faith. And now you have these accounts of his control over the physical and the spiritual, and the people respond with fear. Right, so the Gentiles feared what kind of man had just had this authority over demons. What the disciples had feared, what kind of man has authority over the winds and the sea. So the takeaway is Jesus has all authority in heaven and earth. He has authority over both the physical and the spiritual. The emphasis of the story on spiritual warfare and Jesus' victory over the demons, there's this implication to that authority. In the broader context of Matthew's gospel, where we're going is he has the authority to forgive sins. So if this man has full authority over the physical and the spiritual, what does that mean? Let's look at some other New Testament passages just to pull in a little bit of context here. In 1 Corinthians 15, verse 24, Then comes the end when he delivers the kingdom to God, the Father, after destroying every rule and every authority and power. So Christ has all rule and authority. And the kingdom will be handed to the Father on behalf of the Son after he has destroyed all rule and authority and power. Let's look at Colossians. This speaks to Christ's authority over the spiritual realm. In Colossians 1, starting in verse 15, He is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. For by him all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible. Whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities, all things were created through him and for him. And he is before all things, and in him all things hold together. So as the creator of all things, Christ has complete authority over that creation. In him, all things hold together. So the creation itself is held together by his power. And as we saw in the first half of Matthew 8, some respond positively. And for them, there's much comfort 
And as Colossians continue, we see that comfort. And he is the head of the body, the church. He is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, that in everything he might be preeminent. For in him all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell, and through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether on earth or in heaven, making peace by the blood of his cross. So there, Colossians is making that, that connection between his authority and him making peace by the blood of his cross and the comfort that that brings to those who have faith in him. So for believers, Jesus' authority is a great comfort. Right? Comfort and joy because the one who created all things is the one who came to make peace by the blood of his cross. And so the one who has power to execute judgment is the one who rescues those who have faith in him. Hebrews chapter 9, verse 27. Just as it's appointed for man to die once, and after that comes the judgment. So Christ, having been offered once to bear the sins of many, will appear a second time. Not to deal with sin, but to save those who are eagerly waiting for him. There's an intersection here with where we're at in Revelation as well. So those who are in Christ take comfort in the midst of judgment, eagerly waiting for him. And we see that again in Romans 8, where the one who could condemn us is the one who intercedes for us. The authority and power of our God is a comfort to those who take refuge in him. And so getting back to the context of Matthew, these miracles point to Christ's authority and validate his mission. And the one who has all authority has authority to forgive sins. And that's where Matthew's headed. But to those who do not believe, it's an offense and a cause of fear. And we see that in the passage. Because the one who created the world is the one with the right to judge. And there is appointed a time for judgment. So a time for judgment is set. The demons know it. In verse 29, and behold, they cried out, Why, what have you to do with us, O Son of God? Have you come to torment us before the time? What have you to do with us, O Son of God? Right, first, the demons do not see any common interest between them and Jesus. It's almost like saying, why are you even talking to us? Leave us alone. They didn't think that Jesus ought to bother with them. And at the same time, they did recognize Jesus' authority. They address him as the son of God. So we see the demons understood some things about this spiritual conflict. The others looking on might not have perceived right away. But it's annotated for us so we can make that connection when reading the text. And similar to the previous sections, we need to see and we need to ask this question, just as the disciples did. What sort of man is this that even the winds and the seas obey him? And so we see this contrast and this struggle between Jesus and the demons. And the question that, given his authority and power, who is Jesus? And we also see where things are headed. The demons ask, have you come to torment us before the time? It's pointing towards that end. They knew that a time of judgment was coming. And this was not just some general assumptions about the future. It was a specific understanding that a time had been set. The 
end is not in doubt. And we can look where we're headed in Brett's sermons in Revelation, or we can look further on in Matthew, in verse, um, Matthew 25, verse 41. Then he will say to those on his left, depart from me, you cursed, into the eternal fire prepared for the devil and his angels. Right? A time is appointed for judgment, and the demons knew it. And they knew that the end is certain. And contrary to an animistic or Eastern concept of this economy of spirits, that you're in this continual struggle that's never ending, these demons knew that all of history was driving towards this end. And this is a key thing to understand about Christianity. There's a purpose. There's a goal. There's a direction, and all of history is pointing towards it. So Jesus does not have to convince them or assert his authority. They implicitly just submit to it. And they don't even put up a fight. Instead, they negotiate. They ask Jesus to leave. And so the implication is that he has complete authority over the spiritual realm. This is similar to the way Satan interacts with God in Job. And so this interaction is a bit of a peek into that spiritual reality. There's a dynamic at play that we don't normally see. They recognize Jesus' authority, and he effortlessly wields it. There's no great effort required on Jesus' part to exercise that authority. So what were the demons afraid of? Were they afraid that Jesus would pronounce the final judgment on them then and there? Maybe so, since they make an appeal to God's plan before the appointed time. And they also give an alternative. If you cast us out and send us away into the herd of pigs, Jesus grants their request. And they go into the pigs, and then the the whole herd is cast into the sea. So why a herd of pigs? Why not just cast them out and leave it there? I think all the answers here entail a bit of speculation. There's a little bit of mirror reading here that if you want to answer that question. But in the end, I think there are a few takeaways. Was this to show the destructive tendencies of the demons? Probably. We see multiple accounts where they are greatly destructive. Other times we encounter these beings... Right? They, they, they have this tendency towards destruction. And they cause great harm and disrupt the lives of many people, and especially in this particular passage. Some ask, well, maybe there's just a low view of pigs here, and that's kind of coming out in Matthew's gospel, which is kind of a Jewish-oriented gospel. That might be the case. The pigs would be associated with the Gentile community. Many believe this was the Gentile community there. They talk about the Decapolis, which was the ten cities. It's kind of a Greek collection of cities there. So what it does show is that the people are more valuable than pigs. And that's an interesting contrast in this account. We'll talk about that in a little bit. These two men were more valuable than a whole herd of pigs to Jesus. And that would have been a costly lesson for the people of the town. It would have been a valuable lesson for the disciples to hear that, to see that. 
Others point to how this may be prefiguring judgment, that uh, we're actually getting to this section of Revelation here that, that talks about this judgment. Um, I think there's a very strong implication in the context of this section of Matthew that um, that, that does line up with what Revelation has to say about this. The, the demons recognized that a judgment would come. They weren't going to fight it. Uh, some think that the herd of pigs being cast into the sea prefigures Satan and his demons being cast, cast into the sea. But, but again, I think if you, if you take strong positions on these things that you're, you know, you can't take 100%, but uh, may point there in that direction. Others have asked, what happened to the demons after the pigs were destroyed? Did they find some other victim, or were they sent to some holding place for judgment? Maybe this gives us some idea of the life and times of demons, you know, how they <laughs> interact and what they have to deal with in their, their existence. Um, maybe give some complexities, but uh, being cast out, it seems like they're unable to trouble for a time. I, I think that's kind of implied in the point, is that uh, they're, they're no longer going to be tr- certainly troubling this one or two men, but uh, they're, they're no longer able to to possess for a time is an implication that some take. But what we do know from all of this, what we can, can understand is that demons are destructive, that people are valuable, and that Jesus is in control. Right? Demons are destructive, people are valuable, and Jesus is in control. Right? The people could not control these beings. But Jesus had complete authority even over these powerful beings. So Jesus, in both his teaching ministry and his miracles, points towards this future time when his kingdom would come in its fullness and what they were expecting now are the first fruits of that coming kingdom. This just points toward that greater purpose and plan. And how did the people respond when he calmed the sea? The disciples responded with fear. In in a world where they're subject to these uncertainties of the weather, they fear spiritual forces that they can't control. Then someone more powerful comes along, and the people in this town are fearful. They respond with fear. Let, let's look at the last section here. Verses 33 and 34. The herdsmen fled, going into the city, and they told everything, especially what had happened to the demon-possessed men. And behold, all the city came out to meet Jesus. And when they saw him, they begged him to leave their region. So first, let's talk about these herdsmen. They had this hands-on job of swine herding. And we think about shepherding. Uh, We don't normally think about pigs, because even the word shepherding is sheep herding. But apparently, swine herding is a lot of work. And these pigs like to stick together. And they can thoroughly eat up a patch of land. And so you have to move them around. If you've got 2,000 pigs in one place, there would have been a lot of having to move them around, this massive group of pigs. And um, you add to that that there's these demon-possessed men, and they have to keep the pigs away from the demon-possessed men. So they have to avoid that area. So that complicates their life. The best way to deal with the situation is to keep their distance. And then this major event happens. Jesus comes, he casts the demons into the pigs, and the pigs themselves cast themselves into the sea. And it's, it must have been a traumatic event for these swine herds to watch. 
Can you imagine having to reconcile what just happened? Your, your responsibility, your charge had just been destroyed. It's not a good day for these swine herds. Right? So they fled. It's reasonable to assume that they would want to avoid being blamed. So they go into the city and they tell everything that just happened. And they pointed, hey, look, there's this guy, Jesus. This is how this happened. And so they give testimony to what Jesus did. They tell the people of the town and likely the owners of the herd. And can you just imagine going back to your employer in that situation? Maybe the closest thing you could imagine to a situation like that today is when a company goes bankrupt and all the value goes to zero. And how destructive that would be to somebody's life. And so they told the people what they saw. Jesus had cast out the demons. So in this way, the swineherds themselves were testifying and they were witnesses, but they themselves don't believe. Given the weight of the event and the severity of the harm to the demon-possessed men, the people feared and asked Jesus to leave their region. There's no mention of rejoicing at the removal of the demons. There is a mention of uh, especially what had happened to the men. And in Mark and Luke's accounts, there is more discussion of what happens to the men. But there's no mention of rejoicing at the removal of the demons and the freedom of the men who had been oppressed by them, especially in Matthew. The economic loss of the pigs would have been great. But they were fearful of this man, Jesus. He had total authority over the spiritual world. So they begged him to leave, and Jesus, who had crossed the sea to get away from these great crowds, suddenly finds himself in another situation where there's increasing attention on him. Okay, so what should we take from this? Matthew chapter 8 is laying out for us who Jesus is. It's answering this question, who is Jesus for us? Jesus has authority. His authority extends over the wind and the sea. His authority extends over the demons. The Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins. And this is greater authority than anyone on earth possesses. It answers this question, who is Jesus? He is the one who can heal, who controls the wind, commands demons. And the demons themselves tell us that he is the Son of God. He's not a mere prophet or simply some great teacher. He's the Son of God who comes with authority. And how do they respond? With fear. For those who are not in Christ, that makes sense. We understand how somebody who is not in Christ, who is separated from Christ, in light of his great authority, might respond in fear. If you're on your own in this world and not in control of your own life and the weather or the spiritual forces around you, then someone with great power would evoke fear for you. But we don't need to fear. Earlier, In Matthew 8, we saw several examples of people responding with faith. 
They understood who Christ was and why he came. They understood the implications of answering that question, who is Jesus? He came not just as a judge, but also as a king and as a savior. Fear is the response of someone who sees salvation far off. But Christ comes to bring salvation near to us. You don't have to respond with fear. Instead, see who Jesus is and respond with faith. Jesus has complete authority. The time for judgment is set. And the people who responded with fear, it raises the question of how will you respond? Do you recognize Jesus' authority? As you answer those questions, who is Jesus and what is his plan, where does that take you? Does his authority lead you to fear or to comfort? If you come to Christ for salvation and turn to him in faith, then authority becomes a comfort to you. Knowing that a time for judgment is set, a final judgment will come and the outcome is secure. He delivers the kingdom to God the Father after destroying every rule and authority and power. Do you believe that a time is set? A judgment will come whether we're ready for it or not. And see how these people responded with fear. We see that Jesus' message does demand a response. People will focus on the wrong things even when faced with truth. Others are not comforted by the thought of God. But those who are in Christ take comfort in the midst of judgment, eagerly awaiting his return. How will you respond? Will you respond in faith like the centurion or the leper? As you hear these accounts of Jesus' healing, will you see that he took our illnesses and bore our diseases? That he is the suffering servant of Isaiah, the one who makes peace by the blood of his cross? Or you respond in fear, like the disciples or the townspeople wanting him to leave. Don't fear. He has authority, a time is set, so believe in him. May his power and strength be a comfort to you. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for the testimony of your word that is recorded in the Gospels and that uh, Matthew is laying out a, an account for us, an argument to, to show to us who Jesus is and that he is the Son of God, the one who comes to bring salvation near to us. And as we enter this time of Advent, Lord, help us to see the joy that comes from that, that we can have joy, that we can have comfort, in that those are not just passing words that are used at the Christmas season, but that they are set in the context of the grand narrative of history that Scripture records and is driving towards an ultimate end. Lord, help us. Help us to have faith and to have joy at your coming. It's in Christ's name I pray. Amen. Amen.